Well, good morning, everyone. It is so good to be with you. I hope you have had a great week, and uh, I hope you have the opportunity, as Gloria mentioned, to enjoy an extra long weekend. For those who are new, special welcome. My name is Lee, and uh, I have the privilege to serve here as the lead pastor. Following the service, I'd love to just have the opportunity to connect with you, personally welcome you to, to Harvest, hear a little bit of your story as well. We are in a conversation right now that we're calling Home Field Advantage, and uh, what we're talking about is what does it look like for us to build biblical-based relationships? What would it look like for us to build biblical homes around us with the idea that our home and our relationship should be a place that are for us versus against us? And I hope it's been a fun, encouraging, but at the same time, rightfully challenging conversation that we've had over the last little bit. Now, today specifically, we're going to be making our way through a lot of text, a lot of passages throughout the Bible. Um, you may find it from time to time hard to keep up. Just hang in there if you need to. Snap pictures of the screen as, as we kind of move through this, this conversation. For many of you, you know that I started in ministry as a youth pastor, and I love those years of working with teens, partly because I'd love to see how much we could get them to do. Um, and specifically, we started this game that we called Anything for a Buck. So every time we got together, we'd just see what could I, what crazy thing could I get teenagers to do for a dollar? And it was amazing what uh, your creativity can come up with, and at the same time, what teenagers were willing to do for a dollar. Um, one of my favorite things that we did was we took a Happy Meal from McDonald's and we threw it in a blender and we blended it up and then we said, who will drink this for a dollar? And believe it or not, there were a handful of people's hands would reach out and be like, I'll do it, I'll do it, I'll do it. You know, and you're sitting there going, why would somebody do something so dumb for a dollar, Right. I, I mean, there, there's a part of you sitting there going, why in the world would they do that? There's this drive for more. There, there's always, and it starts young, that we just want more. We want more than what we have. There's aspirations of what we can be. And we think $1 is more than what I currently have, so I'll do something crazy. I can suffer through this for 30 seconds to, to get a dollar, right? I read a few years ago that there was a guy traveling through Europe from one country into the next country, and he was a smuggler. He was trying to smuggle in, believe it or not, geckos. And these were a collector item, gecko, hard to get by, you know, run by. And, and he wanted to get them in because they were worth a lot of money. And so it was a black market type of thing. And he was caught coming through security of the airport, smuggling roughly around 50 geckos. But here's the thing. He stuffed the geckos in his pants, thinking that those geckos, he, he could sneak them through. Now, I just can't imagine, like, how did he stand out? He's going through security, you know, sitting there kind of going, that, no, that's uncomfortable. But it's a great perspective for us what people will do in order to get a little bit more. What are you willing to do? What are you sacrificing even maybe right now with the idea of getting just a little bit more? We talked about even last week that one of the roots of conflict can be finances. And that actually 60% of those that are going through marriage to the point of divorce claim that finances and looking at their finances was a major component to the arguments and conflicts that exist in their homes. The way that we look at money, the way that we look at finances can be awesome or they have the ability to take our home field advantage and make it actually a disadvantage. 
There's a lot that the Bible has to say about finances. There's a lot that the Bible has to say about how we look at money, how we view money, how we engage money. And it can lead to conflict in relationship, or believe it or not, it can actually become a blessing in your life and in your relationship. And so we're going to take some time and we're going to take a look at this. And, and I think for many of us, we think about money and we think about money issues in our life as being an income issue. If I only made a little bit more, then this wouldn't be an issue. There's actually research that's been done across all kind of classes of people. So those that live in the poverty level, making like $24,000 or less, all the way up to those that make roughly $200,000 to $300,000 a year. And they ask the same question. How much would you need to bring home monthly to feel like you can make it? Like how much more than right now what you actually receive in income that you feel like you can take a breath and you can relax a little bit more? Now, the interesting thing is, across all income levels, it was the same answer. If I could only bring home an extra $1,000 to $1,500 a month more, I feel like we could make it. I feel like we could relax. That maybe it wouldn't be such, to bring so much pressure to us. And we have a tendency to look at finances and conflict that surrounds our finances as being just simply an income issue. Here's what we're going to see a little bit today as we have this conversation, is we all have a different definition of what rich is. Every one of us in the room. That we might say, well, if I could make this annual amount, then I'll be rich. If I made this amount, then I'll be rich. Here, here's what I've come to realize at this stage of my life in the conversations with people across every income bracket you can imagine. Rich is a moving target. The moment that you think you're there, it moves. It moves. So the problem isn't really an income issue. I think it's more of an outflow issue. And I want us to, to talk a little bit about that. And this is where we're going to kind of focus in today. Our big idea is this. The challenge for you and I, all of us in life, is to seek life over lifestyle. To seek life over a specific lifestyle of what we think that's when everything will work and everything will be make sense. And the problem is I think we tend to confuse the two. We, we tend to define our quality of life based on what we own. Or let me put it this way. We assign a certain value to our life based on our valuables that are in our home or in our life. Jesus has some interesting things to say. I want us to take a look at this passage. We're going to begin in Matthew chapter 6. Matthew 6 is in the middle of what's called the Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus' longest recorded message that we see in Scripture. You can think of Jesus as giving a sermon. This is the longest recorded one that we have in, in Scripture. This is in the middle of the conversation. And in the middle of the conversation, there's this moment where he kind of shifts gears and he begins to talk about the way that we see life and stuff, our valuables, 
and how we interact with them. So let's pick up there. We're going to begin in Matthew chapter 6. I'm going to begin reading in verse 19. Again, we're going to make our way through a lot of different passages today. You may find it easier just to kind of follow along on the screen as we go through this. But go ahead and follow along with me. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let me just pause there for a moment. It's, it's a fascinating thing that Jesus says there, because in a way, he's shifting the paradigm by how we tend to look at life. Our, our tendency is to sit there and kind of go, well, where my heart is, that's where my treasure will be. What, what gravitates, what, what pulls my heart, that's what I want to invest in. But what Jesus is saying is, honestly, it's the opposite. He says, hey, it's where your treasure is that your heart actually follows behind. In other words, there's an ability for us to actually lead our heart in certain different directions. And we see that so true in the way that life plays out around us. For those that, like, you have an investment portfolio, your tendency is you probably open up your phone on a daily basis and you're checking to see what in the world's going on in the stock market right now. Because that's where your investment is, and your heart is drawn to it, and you want to be able to keep tabs, constantly checking, 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 where am I, where am I, is things moving in the right direction? For those that have kids that are in sports programs, it's so easy for us to get so focused into the sports that maybe that they're going to be the next elite athlete, maybe that they'll get a college scholarship, maybe they'll go even beyond that. And so we invest so much of our time, so much of our finances into club sports and you name it, coaches and all this other stuff, which I'm fine with, like, but they need to be in balance. But what we see is all of a sudden our heart gets so focused on that and everything else becomes secondary because of that. Where we invest our, ourselves financially, our heart follows close behind those things. So we need to be intentional about how we invest our resources. He then goes into this in verse 22. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light, you are in darkness, how great is the darkness? In other words, he's saying, for some of us, we live our lives thinking we're in the light. In other words, everything, we're seeing things clearly. But the reality is you're in darkness because of the way that you're actually going on in your disciplines and the way that you look at these things, and he's making the connection to our finances. You may be thinking you're doing what is right financially, but in the end, he said, you're actually living in the midst of darkness. Don't miss this. Verse 24, he says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. And then he gives us clarity. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Jesus gives us clarity there that I think is important for us to all realize that sometimes we think we can go through life and we can pursue everything that we want from a lifestyle perspective and couple that with pursuit of Christ. And what Jesus is talking about here is idolatry. 
He's saying you cannot put all these things in your life above your relationship and your perspective of who God is. And where does provision actually come from? Is provision based on your ability, your talent, and your performance? Your ability to have a great resume and get a good job, have a wonderful education? Or is your ability actually rooted in the fact of who God has made you to be and what God is actually doing in and around you? It's like, don't get these mixed up. And when we get it mixed up, our tendency is we tend to live anxiously. What's next? How am I going to deal with this? How am I going to be taken care of? I know some of the most anxious moments in my life, and I can even say some of the most anxious moments in our marriage, have been rooted in this conversation about finances. How are we going to pay that bill? How are we going to take care of that thing? And the reason because it becomes ang- ang- creates anxiety in us is sometimes we look at it and go, the pressure's on me. And we lose sight of who God is and God's provision for us. Now, we can even get that out of balance because I've seen it taught. I've seen conversations. My guess is if you've been in church any length of time, you've probably heard it as well, that God's entire perspective is that God wants you to be wealthy, healthy, and wise. Well, the reality is that's wrong and it's deceptive. God wants you to place him at the center of your life. God ordains that. God walks with you. God will provide your daily bread. If God allows you to be wealthy, that's an extra blessing. But the perspective of God being a good God isn't that he just wants you to be wealthy and healthy. There's more to understanding what it means to walk by faith. I want us to take a little, dive a little bit deeper into this. How do we actually get in trouble? Like, how, what is the thing that takes place in our homes, in our relationships, that churns home field advantage in this area to actually be in a disadvantage? The root of our problem really is that we try to fill eternal longings with temporary things. We, we try to fill this internal longing. In the book of Ecclesiastes, it's actually my favorite book in the Bible. Ecclesiastes is written by Solomon. Solomon was the second wisest man to walk the face of the earth. He had everything. He was king of Israel. He is the wealthiest man to walk the face of the earth. His income is estimated in today's dollars to be somewhere between two to three trillion dollars. To put that into perspective, because that's such a huge number. If you took the top 10 richest people in the world and you combine their income, he would look at them and say, I make what you make in a week. That's how wealthy Solomon was, which meant there was nothing that Solomon couldn't try, and he tried it all. He experienced every experience that money could purchase. He did anything from a human perspective, go, man, I think that'll be fulfilling. He pursued relationships. He pursued fame. He pursued popularity. He pursued experience. He pursued sex. He pursued it all. And at the end of his life, he pins this book of Ecclesiastes, and it's kind of a research project. What is the meaning of life? Here's what I've come to find out, and I've pursued it all. And in that, we're going to look at several different 
verses in the book of Ecclesiastes today. He writes this in chapter 3. He says about God, he says, He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he's put eternity into man's heart. In other words, there's this idea in all of us that we wrestle with that this life isn't it. That there's more to life than just this physical tangent moment here on earth. That God has placed that that desire, that understanding deep down inside of all of us. And yet, he says this, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. He says, yes, God has placed this idea of eternity in your heart, but we have an issue with trying to understand what the next step tomorrow is. That we can't quite understand. We can't always quite figure out what that thing is. And when we strive for more, Because again, more, this idea of being rich, whatever, however you want to define it, it's a moving target. When we strive for more, what we really are hoping to have or experience in life is more satisfaction, more significance, and more security. I want more satisfaction. I want more significance, and I want more security. Let me walk you through these a little bit and and explore how Scripture helps us define this. First one, that we hope to have more satisfaction in life. Again, Solomon says this, Ecclesiastes chapter 510, if you're taking notes. He says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also his vanity. It's kind of this idea that we talked about at the beginning. Like, if I could just make 1000 or $1,500 more, then, oh, I can relax. Then I, 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 the pressure just won't be there. I won't be anxious. This idea of just, if I could just have a little bit more, and this striving for more to feel like I can satisfied, this appetite will never go away. And what Solomon says is says, this is meaningless. In other words, this is just vanity. That's really the drive of this. In the long term, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I think about it for me. Like, I like to eat. I have an appetite. I can, when I'm hungry, I can put food down. But my problem is the very next day, I'm ready to put more food down. It doesn't quite ever go away. And I love donuts. And I love sip and dip donuts. Right? So I I love those donuts. And every time I drive by that donut shop every single day. And I promise you, I have an appetite every single day for one of those donuts. But I know it's not good for me. So I've learned to say no to some of those appetites. Same thing comes down to some of our finances in life. Like we want to pursue a lifestyle. We want to pursue certain things. And that appetite never goes away. The appetite for more never goes away. So we've got to learn how to discern what's the cause of that. How do I control that? How do I discipline myself in a way that my entire life isn't driven by this satisfaction for more? That I need more. The second thing we talked about was significance. Significance. Jesus talks about this in Luke chapter 12, verse 15. And he said to them, he says, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. 
Just like we talked about before, our tendency is to connect our valuables to our value, or our net worth to our overall worth. And, and what Jesus says, don't fall for that trap. The moment that you fall for that trap, it's going to lead you down a path that's going to lead towards heartache, and it's going to hurt. The last one we talked about is security. Solomon says this, again, back into chapter 5 of Ecclesiastes, this, drive, this striving for security. He says, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? If you have kids that are teenagers or have been teenagers, you know that to be true. Like, as my goods increase, they decrease. As soon as I get food in the pantry, it's gone, Right? And I sit there and I watch it going, how in the world can you keep eating that? But they do. He says this in verse 12, Sweet is the sleep of the laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Therefore, therefore, is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owners to his hurts, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil, what he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to keep him who toils of the wind? Verse 17, Moreover, all of his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation, in sickness, and in anger. To sum all that up, what Solomon is saying, and this is, this is helpful for us to understand here in Ecclesiastes 5. He's saying that having more, it will bring more expense, it will bring more worries, and it brings more pain when it's lost. Think about that for a moment. The more that I have, the more that I have to lose. The more that I have the more that I have to worry about. The more that I have, it will bring more expense, more administration, more worries, more pain. And this is somebody who had it all. And so he's writing from a personal perspective, I've lived this. I've come to realize this is true. So if, if this pursuit of lifestyle takes place of life, how do we reverse it? How do we learn to seek life over lifestyle? Well, there's some hints that we see that Jesus talks about right there in Matthew chapter 6. This idea that we can actually lead our heart by the way that we invest. So I want to walk you through some principles that Scripture helps us understand. How do we actually begin to make sense? How do we learn to walk God's way when it comes to our finances, and in doing so, it will help us avoid financial trouble. That's how I want us to think about it. The first step is this. Give first. Give first. Begin to adopt a lifestyle of generosity. Giving back first is a way for us to honor God as our provider of all good things. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 9 through 10. It's not going to come up here on the screen, but I just want you to listen to these words. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 9 and 10 says this. It says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the best part of everything you produce. 
Then he will fill your barns with grain and your vats will overflow with good wine. It's fascinating to me that, that again, that's written by Solomon. That Solomon says that, and we, as if you've grown up in the church, you're very familiar with this passage in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5, that says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him and what he will make your path straight. So this idea that we can go through life and we can try to define what is reasonable, we try to define meaning by ourselves. And we do this all the time. We look at our own experiences. We look at what we want to define truth. We want to create conspiracy theories, whatever it is. We can, we can go whatever direction we want to go. And what Solomon is saying, hey, one of the things that we got to learn to do, push that down to the side, trusting God in his way first. That there's certain things in life, the reality is we're just too finite to actually comprehend. God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. So God is working in ways that we cannot fully comprehend. So we've got to learn to push that aside. Trust in God first. Don't lean on your own understanding. And it's fascinating that directly after that verse that we talk about all the time in the church, that he then goes into finances. And and says that in verse 9. Let me read it again. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the best part of everything you produce. Then he will fill your barns with grain and your vats will overflow with good wine. Why do we learn to give first to honor God? Because what it does is, is we are investing in what God is doing. If we want our heart to be owned by God, it begins by investing what God is doing. We invest in his mission plan. And for some of us, we've grown up in the church our whole lives, but we've never actually learned to adopt that as a principle we live by. I'm telling you right now, you're missing out. You're missing a key foundational piece that will help guide you towards the things that God is doing. It will help you stay on mission with what God's mission is all about. And it takes discipline. That the principle that we see in Scripture taught about is this idea of 10%. It's called the tithe. Tithe literally means 10%. And I know, because for some of you in the room, you might sit there and go, man, 10% of my income giving to God and his mission? That's hard. Like, I will actually have to change my lifestyle. Here's a little secret. That's the point. That is absolutely the point of it, is learning to align my life with who God is and what God is wanting to do, saying, God, I'm going to trust you for all of my provision. And what I've come to realize in my life, giving 10% to God and learning to live on 90% with his participation is always better than me owning 100%. His ability to be invested in walking with me in my finances, he handles and manages that a whole lot better than I ever can. And the way the Bible talks about is that we will experience his blessing. Now, that doesn't mean it's going to be tenfold, okay? But it means that we'll experience his blessing. There's a a wisdom in which he provides for us in walking through these things. And, And here's my encouragement. Start with the next step. For some of you, you've given nothing. 
you need to start with something. To, to immediately pull the trigger and rip the Band-Aid off and go to 10% tomorrow may be just too much. But, but take a step. In other words, go from nothing to something. Maybe it's $50 a week where you begin to invest in what God is doing. For some of you, you've been doing something for a long time. Maybe it's time to go to significance. And, and what significance looks like is that I'm going to begin to proportion a certain portion, percentage of my income. And I'm just going to base that where maybe it's 2%, it's 3%. I'm going to begin to move that direction, and I'm going to invest that. For some of you, maybe that's where you're at, and maybe it's time to go to the tithe. So you go from significance to tithe. For some of you, the tithe isn't difficult. I grew up in the church. From the time I was four and having birthday money coming in, my parents began to teach me the tithe. That's just what I did. And so I've always adopted that discipline in my life. And there comes a point where we have to move from being willing to go from tithe to sacrificial. It's not like God put a limit on what we can give back. And that's a, a discipline that we've learned to adopt into our lifestyle. And I can promise you this. I've never been disappointed that I did it. And yes, there have been moments, talking from a personal standpoint, where Melissa and I and our family, we've gone through very challenging financial situations. And yet I've experienced the miraculous hand of God's provision in the middle of those moments. And here's what I want you to know. When you invest in what God's mission is, you're inviting his participation in this area of your life. I don't want you to miss that. Don't miss out on inviting God's participation into this very essence of this area of your life. But it begins when we say, God, you are the priority. I'm going to choose to give first. The second is we learn to save second. Save second. Why? That helps us build wealth. It's smart. We need to have a rainy day fund. So we save for the future in this process. Proverbs 21.20, Solomon says this. He says, the wise have wealth and luxury, but fools spend whatever they get. Which one do you want to live there? The wise have wealth and luxury, but fools spend whatever they get. Let's not choose the foolish path. Saving is wise. The third is we learn to live on the rest. How do we learn to live on the rest? Well, we have to plan out our spending. Proverbs 21.5 says, Good planning and hard work lead to prosperity, but hasty shortcuts lead to poverty. So make a budget. Begin to plan your spending. Part of this is you've got to keep good records. Solomon says this about having good records. He says, know the state of your flocks. This is from Proverbs 27. Know the state of your flocks and put your heart into caring for your herds, for riches don't last forever, and the crown might not be passed to the next generation. He's talking to an agrarian society. He's saying, hey, know how many sheep you have a part of your flock. A good shepherd knows. I mean, I was just having a conversation with a rancher here in Florida that helps on a major big ranch. And I just said, hey, how many cattle do you guys manage? He goes, we have 40,000 head, but then we also have 40,000 calves every year. 
Like, I mean, and then you begin to ask more questions. Like, they know what it takes. They know how many acres they need to manage the cattle of that size. They know what costs are going to be involved when it comes to feeding that much cattle. And what, what Solomon is telling is, that, hey, know the state of your flocks. In other words, keep good records. Plan your spending. Learn to live on the rest. I love this. This is an old Swedish proverb. It says, he who spends what he does not have steals from himself. Think about that. He who spends what he does not have steals from himself. If you want to do well financially, spend less than you make. I promise you, you spend less than you make, you'll be fine. But for some reason, that's a very, very hard discipline for many people to live by. So you need to track what you own, what I owe, what I earn, where it goes. Here's, here's the last thing. Enjoy what you have. Enjoy what you have. Solomon says this in Ecclesiastes 6 verse 9. He says, enjoy what you have rather than desiring what you don't have. Just dreaming about nice things is meaningless like chasing the wind. Friends, it all begins and how we seek after life. Seek life God's way. Let his word be the foundational piece to how you look at your finances, how you set up your finances, how you converse about finances. It doesn't have to be a con- place of conflict. Allow God to be the center of that, but it begins by inviting him into it. And the way that we invite him into it is we give first to him and his mission. Yes, It will require you to set up your lifestyle a little bit differently. But I promise you, you will not regret it. His participation in your life. He can manage the the little much more than you can manage a lot. So invite him in, allow him to participate, guide it. And the great thing is, he says, it's okay to enjoy what you have. It's not a bad thing to have nice things. It's not a bad thing to have extra But we need to learn how to prioritize him first over lifestyle. And in that, we'll experience great life. I want you to know you're not alone in this journey. It's something that Melissa and I, our home, we're constantly trying to still figure out and battle through. But again, I can tell you, I've never regretted making him number one in our life in this area. And I hope you'll do the same. Let me pray for us. Lord, we love you. And we thank you that you are the giver of all good things that you are our provider. And Lord, this is an area of faith. It requires faith. There's parts of this that from a worldly standpoint, we look at it and go, this just doesn't make sense. But Lord, we want to invite you into this area of our life. And so God, help us to. Help us to turn this area into a home field advantage. And God, guide us in even in these moments where it's hard for us to trust and it's hard for us to believe, I pray. In your name, amen. Amen.